Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. For anyone who watched Tiger Woods return to competitive golf last week, you couldn't do so without also watching Hideki Matsuyama. The 24-year-old won his fourth tournament in five starts, kind of ran away with the tournament from the get-go. Matsuyama's recent charge has vaulted him into the top 10 in the world rankings, all the way up to number six as we look towards 2017. It had been nearly 20 years since a Japanese golfer was in the top 10 rankings. But who was that man? He was known as Jumbo Ozaki, and as Brandel Chambly would later write, he was Sinatra in Spikes. Jumbo's full name is actually Masashi Ozaki, and he's the greatest Japanese golfer of all time. Decades ago, he set the standard that Hideki Matsuyama will one day be measured against in terms of Japanese golf royalty. For now, we'll give Hideki the benefit of time. Instead, let's dive deep into Jumbo. In addition to being the best Japanese golfer ever, he's also likely the most mysterious golfer ever. Longtime Sports Illustrated writer John Garrity did his best to understand the mystery that is and was Jumbo Ozaki. John wrote a feature on Jumbo previewing the 1998 Masters. It was titled A Giant in Japan. John joins me today to talk about that article and share some memories of his attempt to profile Jumbo back in 1998. John, first things first, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's flash back to Masters Week 98. You had written the profile, obviously, in the months prior, but Masters Week 98, Jumbo Ozaki is ranked number nine in the world. He had never won a PGA Tour event, though. So there had to be fans, spectators down in Augusta, who said, Ozaki who? Or Jumbo who? Was that was there a feeling of that down there in Augusta? Well, that was the issue. That's why that's why I went to Japan to do the story because uh, by this time Jumbo is uh, uh, he's over fifty. I think he's fifty one years old uh, and is not playing the Champions Tour. He's still playing full time uh, in Japan. But uh, there were lots of arguments about the World Golf Rankings back there, and uh, is that the uh, Japanese golf tournaments that he was winning so frequently got, got a good number of points. And a couple of the tournaments, uh, the Taiheo Masters and the Dunlop Phoenix, uh, attracted a good international field as well. Uh, so they got even more points. But there were a lot of American golfers, European golfers, Australian golfers who were very upset that Jumbo at 51 uh, was being ranked so high. I imagine there's some difficulty in having a world ranking when the game, I guess it wasn't exactly as international as it would be today, the schedules of players. Was that the case that people that were playing in the 90s, not necessarily Nicholas, but, you know, Faldo and all these guys, they're not playing as international of a schedule as tour players might play nowadays? Yeah, that was the case, although these two Japanese tournaments uh, were maybe the exception to that, as was the uh, Australian Open, uh, the Australian Masters, perhaps. Uh, they were on the uh, on the fall schedule, and they were big-money tournaments, so you didn't have a big turnout of, of U.S. players there, for instance, or Europeans, uh, but the ones who went were with the stars. So it was like a McElroy or Tiger Woods going over uh, to make an appearance in those two tournaments. Um, but uh, so we we decided that at SI that uh, that I'd go and, and try to do a story on Jumbo if we could get him to talk to us. And it turned out that that was actually uh, a pretty big deal because uh, generally, if you were trying to interview Jumbo. Uh, you'd have to send letters to his representatives and his management companies and all that, and they'd fool around for a few weeks and then politely decline. And it actually took us, I think, 
my memory is it took us a good two months uh, to make arrangements for me to go over there and talk to him. And uh, and that was with the help of our, you know, our Tokyo Bureau of Time Inc. magazines and, and all that stuff. It, it was very, very political because we didn't realize how big a deal uh, Jumbo was in Japan. That's incredible. And I imagine you can't. But you got to that within the article. You got to the to the reasons why he was the most popular golfer in Japan, probably one of the most popular athletes, one of the most popular people in Japan. But to be the most popular golfer at any point in time doesn't make you unique. It it just it it, it kind of speaks to your era. But at that time, as as you'll say, he had crowds of two thousand, three thousand people lining the fairways at his events over in Japan. You even quoted someone in the article saying that he was the Arnold Palmer of Japan? Absolutely. Uh, or the Seve Ballesteros, or what, whatever you want to say. This guy was an absolute star. Now, first of all, we got to explain that uh, despite his nickname Jumbo, he was not a, a giant of a man. Uh, he put on a little weight in his later years, but, uh, but uh, he, was, he was medium height at, at best. But he had this gigantic aura and personality. Uh, if you kind of think of a combination of uh, Elvis, Frank Sinatra, maybe Liberace, uh, with a little bit of uh, Doug Sanders on the sartorial side, except Jumbo's Jumbo's clothes, uh, I mean, they, they were flashy, they, uh, but, but they were made of these incredible materials. I mean, the most expensive clothes you can think of, all these kinds of fancy velours and linens, cashmere, cashmere sweaters with geometric patterns or incredible swirls of color. I mean, just really, really an elegant uh, and, and flashy-looking guy. So total star power. Uh, he had kind of an intimidating air about him. He had this uh, this kind of interesting shag haircut, uh, which was more the sort of thing that you'd see, uh, you know, speed tribe youth uh, in the uh, in the soapland districts of, of Tokyo. Uh, wearing, I mean, just a very flashy thing, and and the point of this, uh, my, my emphasizing all this is this is very un-Japanese. You know, the Japanese do not go for usually for all this flashiness or calling attention to oneself. So he really stood out for wanting to be a star and wanting to be the center of attention uh, for for his countrymen, and they they absolutely loved him for it. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty great description. Uh, another one that Golf.com actually wrote is by Brando Chambly. Brando wrote that he was Sinatra in Spikes, that actually once on a tee box at the 1999 U.S. Open, while waiting for the green to clear, Jumbo stuck out two fingers to the side. It looked like a peace sign, and within seconds, one of his handlers, one of the people of his entourage, placed a lit cigarette between those two fingers. John, we just don't, we don't see this. We don't see this kind of stuff nowadays. That, that's perfect. Uh, two things about that. One, entourage, uh, as that Jumbo had an entourage with him everywhere that he went. And, and, and you reminded me with that thing about the cigarette between the fingers is uh, what, what I remember is that um, he'd, he'd smoke cigarettes on the tee. He, he, was, a, he was a chain smoker. Uh, but his caddy would be standing by his side uh, with a, uh, a leather pouch full of sand. And so whenever Jumbo was ready to hit, he'd pass the cigarette on there, and then the the cigarette would be doused in the uh, uh, in the pouch, uh, waiting for him to light up his next one. Uh, I mean, this was like royalty, you know, on the golf course. It's like he had more than one caddy, a caddy for each purpose of his life. Really, that's that's pretty incredible. 
there's a, an important distinction that you make early on in your feature, and it's almost not as much you making it, but it's during your interview with him, uh, Masashi Jumbo Osaki said that there's a difference between Masashi and Jumbo, as they are almost two different personas or just two different beings. What did he mean by that? Well, it's exactly what you said. Uh, when, as a young man, he created this persona, uh, this, uh, uh, this, this gaudy, outgoing character of Jumbo. Uh, Masashi, by all accounts, was sort of a, a homebound family man, uh, you know, wife and, wife and children, uh, a shy man, according to some people, uh, although it's, it's, that's kind of hard to countenance. Uh, so he was he was very aware uh, that he was creating almost a mythical fictional character that he would play, um, and then he'd retreat into his private life at home, his very Japanese uh, you know uh, home life, and uh, it, it's kind of intriguing. You know, uh, uh, we we've seen you know some American stars. Uh, Tiger comes to mind, a much less flamboyant figure in, in some respects, but he certainly created that wall, that division between his public persona and uh, and his private life that he wouldn't let the media or anybody else breach. Um, uh, but Jumbo was uh, way ahead of him there. And, and again, Jumbo is more like our classic entertainment celebrities uh, than he is the typical athlete. Now, this mammoth celebrity, this golf celebrity in Japan, he was met with so much skepticism, even criticism, here in the United States. And as you said earlier, he was in his 50s. So it's not like he was a young star in his 20s that you would have this natural skepticism about because you didn't have proof. You didn't have um, years upon years of golf tournaments to, to look at as evidence. Why was there so much skepticism circling around a 51, 52-year-old man? Well, a couple of things. One, one was that uh, he didn't have the international record. Um, you know, he, I think at the Masters, he had one top 10 finish. He missed the cut a lot of times. Uh, he didn't do anything special in the, in the Open Championship or the U.S. Open. Didn't play very often in the U.S. Uh, he, he was uncomfortable traveling, even with his entourage. Uh, he, was, uh, he was used to being taken care of, you know, by, uh, uh, by, by his wife and uh, I forget the term they used for it over there, but uh, 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 the uh, Okamoto, I believe, the, the star uh, Japanese women golfer on the LPGA, uh, had, had kind of scoffed at the, uh, the Japanese men, saying that they really couldn't. They had to be taken care of. They had to be pampered all the time, or they couldn't, uh, or they couldn't play as well. And so Jumbo was always like a fish out of water when he was uh, when he was away from Japan. But in Japan. He was sensational. I mean, he uh, he won well over a hundred tournaments there, uh, and including including all the big ones, and uh, and was a dominant player even against the best international fields when they went there. So the second part of it was uh, the fact that uh, he was rumored to be a cheat, and uh, I remember that that was mostly circulated originally by Greg Norman. Uh, who had complained uh, at a couple of events in Japan that he'd seen Jumbo ground his club, uh, you know, in the rough behind the ball to give himself a better lie. Uh, and then there was the whole issue of the of the fact that uh, he was hitting the ball so far. You know, he's 51 years old and he's not that big. Uh, and and uh, he was just pounding out these long drives that were amazing, a lot of his younger competitors. So, 
it was said or believed by most of the American uh, tour players and their caddies is that he was playing, that he had bad, illegal equipment, that he was playing a hot ball, that there was something magical about the clubs that he was using. And this turn, in doing my research uh, that year, this, this turned out to be one of the more fascinating aspects of the thing because uh, it turned out uh, that the golf ball that Jumbo was playing was uh, Bridgestone, one of those uh, first two-piece solid core golf balls. Uh, with uh, less spin and what he was doing he was teeing it up about four inches and he was launching it at a higher angle which is what golfers do now and that's how he was getting all this additional distance uh it's just a year or two later i think that uh that nike starts building that ball for tiger and Titleist switches over and starts making the pro v1 with the same characteristics and suddenly all the other players were getting that same additional distance but the ball he was playing, the so-called hot ball, uh, you could buy uh, you could buy at uh, Golfsmith or, or, or Walmart uh, at a discount back then. It goes to show just a lot of times how sports aren't exactly ready for the technology that could revolutionize them. And this is a pretty good example of that. The, the cheating allegations, I felt after reading, uh, I felt your reporting left you a bit unsure about his integrity on the course. I mean, if Greg Norman... And a number of other of of other instances, the caddies, as you talk about in in the article, say that he's not exactly honorable in everything he does uh, on the golf course and in an integrity man's game. I think I think it felt it felt like you were leaning towards being very unsure about his integrity. Yeah, there was no way to confirm or or deny that uh, Norman's testimony was probably the strongest against him a lot of the uh the uh tour players and caddies who were insisting that uh, uh that he wasn't on the up and up uh really had no way of knowing because they you know they weren't there they weren't watching him i remember jerry higginbotham who was uh, marco mira's caddy uh was uh was one of those who passed on a couple of the uh of the uh accusations about about jumbo i can't remember if it was jerry but one of the caddies told me that watching him mark his ball was like watching somebody play Chinese checkers. <laughs> and so there are all these great, uh, great lines and, and testimony. But when I got to Japan and I was talking to the golfers there, particularly the American golfers, Peter Teravain, and I remember was playing over there at the time. He was the American golfer from uh, Harvard. Uh, Todd Hamilton, who went on to win, uh, win a British Open. Those two guys in particular, I remember, said, we've been over here watching him play. And we never have seen anything untoward in his sportsmanship or his play. And they repeatedly said, this guy can play golf. In Japan, he, he makes the putts that Nicholas used to make when they have to be made. He hits it a mile. He's got an incredible short game. And he can stand up to pressure of any kind. Um, and I, I think it was Tom Watson that said, any, you know, any, doesn't matter where you are, you win over 100 tournaments, you can flat out play. And and that was the attitude of everybody who saw him play. And I got to say, I watched him play there in the uh, Taiheo Masters, and uh, I would, and also at uh, uh, at the Dumlock Phoenix. And at 51, it was really impressive. I mean, this guy could really play golf. And uh, and I never picked up any any charges of uh, of cheating or saw anything. Uh, out of the ordinary when I was there. And I remember Jerry Higginbotham, that, that was Umira's caddy, said the same thing. He said every, everything everything looked good to him. So who knows? How do, how do you, uh, you know, when a charge like that has been leveled, there's really no way to clear a guy. 
it's tough for golfers to go out and, and say things about that or of that nature about other golfers for there to be cheating allegations. There was probably some form of cheating, but as you say, there was no exact proof, no way to be exactly sure about it. But And the golf ball charge, the equipment charge, turned out, turned out to be bogus. Yes. Uh, it was a legal ball, legal clubs, and everybody was playing that ball, you know, a couple of years later. I remember in the in years prior to 1998, there was this idea of a jumbo driver that he was he was gifting to various players on tour. Ray Floyd being one of them, Jack Nicklaus being another, and a couple of guys that were around his age, obviously, that were playing very well at Augusta in later years. Do you remember that being a story, the jumbo driver? I remember that very well, and I actually had some inside uh, knowledge on that, and because it was it was it was named for him. It was a it was the Bridgestone Club, and he played in the Masters, and he, and, and then he uh, Floyd and Nicholas both started using it uh, uh, that year, and uh, and just absolutely loved it, and uh, and so and so they started selling great in the stores here in the U.S. Bridgestone was you know uh, <laughs> filling up the stores with them, and uh, but Nicholas was curious. Nicholas didn't want to play. Uh, he, he needed to play a McGregor club, which was his company at that time. And so he asked the McGregor uh, staff down in Georgia to, uh, to, you know, do a reverse engineering mm-hmm. and figure out what the magic was in that <laughs> golf club, what the combination of shaft and club head was and all like that. And you know what the amazing thing was they discovered? Uh, they discovered that it was a, uh, uh, it was a metal knockoff of his old, uh, his old McGregor driver that he had won a whole bunch of majors with, his favorite driver ever. And it was actually an identical, had all the identical playing characteristics of his club. That's why he liked it so much and played so well with it at Augusta. So he had no difficulty matching that club. And it was just, it was just a metal form? Yeah, yeah, it was the same thing. It, it, was, just, it was just a knockoff of a very good golf club. That's fascinating. And as you said earlier, some of Jumbo's highest praise came from the people that played with him. Uh, I said Brandel Chambly earlier. Brandel spent some time playing a couple of those events. He went down as saying the Ozaki trio of brothers, there's three of them, they're wildly successful, probably the best golf family that ever lived. Um, yeah. Todd Hamilton, as you said, uh, British Open champion. At some point in your reporting, you realized that be- even before seeing him play, there was a l- – there was a lot of uh, people detracting from his his persona, but there's also a lot of people backing him up. So uh, what I'm just curious about is, like, as a reporter, you're stuck there. You can only talk to so many people, and he's not really helping you out that much. And there's a lot of people on one side of the fence. There's a lot of people on the other side of the fence. Was it where you needed you needed to see it to believe it, see it to, to report it almost? Yeah, I think, I think that's the case. Uh, I can say... Uh... Uh, I was convinced enough that uh, uh, in in later years, uh, when I got my ballot for the World Golf Hall of Fame, I always voted for Jumbo. Uh, I was definitely convinced. Um, uh, there was just, uh, in, you know, you would think looking at him and seeing all this uh, the persona he developed as uh, uh, this kind of Japanese playboy type look and uh, that, that he wouldn't be a person of substance, but, uh, but he actually, uh, was a, a genuine perfectionist in, in a lot of respects. Uh, this may seem trivial, but one thing I've never forgotten, I think in, in, at the Dunlop Phoenix clubhouse, 
uh, there was a little shrine to him with memorabilia for all the times he'd won that tournament and and photographs and, and everything else. And there was a framed letter that he had written of thanks uh, to the club after having won the previous year or something. And if you looked at the uh, uh, at his handwriting, it, it was like the finest calligraphy. It was just absolutely. It was it was just beautiful. You know, it was, it was like a work of art in itself. And then the people I talked to said that he was a perfectionist just about uh, about everything that he did. And he had all kinds of interests. He, uh, you know, he collected wines. Uh, he was involved with uh, uh, collecting classic cars. Uh, he collected and played guitars, and he made he made several hit records at one time. I, I never got to hear them, but uh, and he often discarded these activities, but he did it. The perfectionism stood out. I remember I was traveling with uh, Robert Beck, was our uh, our great Sports Illustrated photographer, was mm-hmm. with me on this trip. And uh, in, in my interview with Jumbo, uh, I uh, through an interpreter, I finally had said, you know, we would like to get a portrait with him. And, and his latest hobby and his obsession was bonsai, which is, you know, that careful tending of these little dwarf, dwarf plants and trees uh, that's so beautiful and so popular in Japan, which is a real art. Uh, and I said, could we maybe get a, a good Robert take a portrait of them uh, uh, with a bonsai, uh, with one of these little trees? And he kind of smiled and shook his head and said, uh, I, I wouldn't want to have my picture taken with a cheap bonsai. He said, maybe if you got a $10,000 bonsai. <laughs> and, uh, and this turned out to be pretty funny because uh, uh, Robert, the photographer, took this as a challenge. Yeah. And uh, over the next week to 10 days, he started searching out uh, bonsai wranglers everywhere to see if we could get a, a, you know, one of these little trees brought in for the portrait that would meet uh jumbo's uh standards and then we actually did that at the dunlop phoenix and uh i think pro-am night in the big ballroom uh we got jumbo to come in early and the uh, bonsai wrangler had bought the tree to a, a you know little conference room we were setting up a uh a, a photo site and uh, jumbo came in and uh, I mean, he he thought it was really funny that we were doing this. He did this. I guess he did this after the round on Thursday. He comes in and he walks around and he squints and he touches the tree and he pinches this and he, he tests the earth and does all this kind of stuff. And then finally turns around and uh, you know nodded to Robert and said, "Yes, I'll do it." <laughs> uh, so it was a, a real testimony to Robert Beck's uh, professionalism as a photographer that he could come up with a bonsai grand enough that jumbo uh, agreed to be uh, uh, shot with it and that was the uh, the full page uh, the f- full page spread photograph uh, for the uh, for the piece when it ran in SI it was beautiful have you ever profiled someone that was more fascinating than jumbo ozaki uh, not many people no I, I i'd have to say we haven't even talked about the yakuza yeah and that's uh, another layer association is alleged associations with the japanese mob uh, which gets to a whole other, you know, level of uh, associates of his who seem to be missing fingers, which of course is a trademark of uh, of, uh, of the yakuza. And at the time I was there, he was leaving Bridgestone as far as golf clubs concerned. Jumbo was, and uh, signed a big equipment deal with a company that had never done made anything except uh, uh, karaoke machines. And uh, the understanding of everybody is that Jumbo had lost a lot of money in the uh, in the real estate bubble before it burst in Japan. 
and this was a way of funneling large sums of money, uh, you know, to Jumbo uh, from perhaps uh, sources that we uh, didn't want to attribute. Uh, but it was just all part of the Jumbo Ozaki aura. I mean, this is uh, uh, this is extraordinary personality in a country uh, that usually isn't given to. to uh, to raising eccentric personalities to this level. Uh, but but Jumbo was very special indeed. I guess my perception after reading it multiple times in the past week, and actually even prior to that, when you add in all of his uh, his personality, as you say, and, and you, you had people comparing him to Arnold Palmer, in your interview you talk about almost a, a Tiger Woods-like control of the room, of the situation, of the inability to get to him, months and months of work that went into trying to get a sit down. It felt like Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods like control. Would you would you say right. that that's fair? Is to have the the personality uh, and the popularity of Arnold Palmer with the kind of uh, the control and uh, almost demeanor of Tiger Woods in some ways? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, that that's that's a very good way of putting it. And it also explains why he never found the the success overseas is because he could never have that control when he was in other people's environments. It's you know he he owned the stage in Japan. He could control everything in Europe or the United States. It was even with his entourage. It was a totally different situation, and it it probably diminished him in some way. And it explains why he played so infrequently overseas. Now, I know you got to go, but one more thing I want to talk about. To me, what is almost the most fascinating thing about this guy is that he continues to compete in Japan. Now, whether or not uh, you want to bend the word or the definition of competition, but just three years ago at age 66, he shot a 62 in the, the Saruya Open. He entered 12 events just last year at age 69. He missed the cut in three, and he withdrew from the other nine. But, John, he's 69 years old. He's still entering tournaments. He's going to turn 70 in early 2017. And if recent history is any indication, he'll continue to play. I'm not sure if it's it's me being a Westerner, but it just seems odd. Does it make sense to you that he does this? Oh, well, I guess he's got a little bit of Gary Player in him as well. Yeah. Because uh, Gary just kept competing and kept competing and everything, and uh, uh, hey, the guy can golf his ball, uh, and apparently he's kept himself healthy enough, even with the cigarettes. And uh, I, th- I think he's just an amazing figure in uh, in golf history, and it's a shame that the uh, American audience doesn't appreciate him more. Thank you, John, for joining me and and kind of going down that path. One last question: You think we ever see another golfer like him? Uh. A golfer like Jumbo. Well, uh, there may be some who try, but, uh, you know, imitation is, uh, is never going to live up to the, uh, the original. So I say, no, he's unique. Well, we can leave it at that, and I think that's a perfect way to sum up Jumbo Ozaki. Thank you for tuning in to the Golf.com podcast. Thank you to John for joining me and helping break down a very underappreciated story in the golf world. If you like the podcast, let me know about it on Twitter at Sean underscore Zak. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. If you hated the podcast, same spot, let me know. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zak.